was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am thrilled to introduce my guest, one of Broadway's top leading ladies, Karen Ziemba. After replacing as Peggy Sawyer in 42nd Street, she too became a star and created roles in the legendary shows Contact, Steel Pier, Never Gonna Dance, Curtains, and The World Goes Round, Bullets Over Broadway, and more. You may also remember her from Nonsense, Teddy and Alice, Prince of Broadway, Chicago, Crazy for You, A Chorus Line, Kid Victory and I Do, I Do. So, without further ado, the glorious Karen Ziemba. So, um, I guess I first want to ask you how you first got interested in theater. Well, that goes, that's a, that's a, goes a long way back. My grandmother, Winifred Height, my maternal grandmother, she was my mom's mom, she, uh, she sang with New York City Center Opera, which was the New York City Opera back in you know, back in the day, back in the 30s and 40s, because it was, they, their their venue was city center on West oh. 50th Street. And she, because she was sort of in show, I guess she was in show business, more classical show business, but my mom um, was raised with a lot of music and because she would come visit um, her mom in New York, she got to see a lot of theater and she was taken to all the movie musicals of the time and so she just loved it so much so she gave it to me when I came along but my mom who wanted to be a dancer never was she married young and raised a family so uh she also gave that to me too when uh I was a child so it was sort of like you do it you do it and I love I took like a like a duck to water so um, and loved all the attention I got, you know, dancing around and putting on skits and things. So <laughs> I just kept it up. And that's sort of my background with that. But I, it was definitely because my mom and dad loved music and we played a lot of, you know, movie soundtracks and cast albums from Broadway shows and watched a lot of movie musicals and things like that. So that's why I got into it, I guess, because I, I was, I was encouraged, but I also enjoyed putting on plays myself, amateurly in a, as a kid. <laughs> so was there anyone you saw or heard on stage or on screen that you sort of thought you would want to be like someone who? Oh, so many. Um, <clears throat> I loved Shirley MacLaine. I loved Judy Garland. Uh, duh. <laughs> Uh, and, and the guys, you know, Fred Astaire and uh, uh, Gene Kelly, of course, Ginger Rogers, I forgot Ginger. Uh, but a lot of those people that not only were great in musicals, but had pretty good acting chops, too. 
And so that was, they, they were great storytellers along with then being able to break out into dance. So that's what I really admired about them. And they always got me, you know. Yeah. But uh, gosh, so many. I mean, I never, I didn't get to see Broadway shows when I was a kid living in Michigan, but we did get to listen to the cast albums. And so listening to Gwen Verdon and Sweet Charity and, you know, Cheetah Rivera and West Side Story uh, and Carol Lawrence, of course, as Maria. There was, there's certain ones that we played over and over again. <clears throat> Fiddler on the Roof was another one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, my brothers and I would dance through the living room to that. So I knew them from their, through their voices, but didn't get to meet them until much later in life when I became a performer myself and then was lucky enough to make their acquaintance. Yeah. So where did you begin to study acting or singing or dancing? At the Y, WCA, when I was a little girl, my mother took me to this ballet class in, in their gymnasium. And they, I had this wonderful Russian ballet teacher, Rama, I remember. She, she, she still could move and she had the most beautiful arms. And she really liked me. She'd always kind of put me in the front. And uh, probably because I was a show off, I don't know. But uh, she was, yeah, that fat girl, she's going to she's gonna smile and make it look like she's having a good time. <laughs> and... Uh, that's where I started my ballet lessons. And then we moved to out to uh, to the suburbs of Detroit and my mother started me in tap, tap dancing. So I was doing ballet and tap, which was great to do both together because they're very, very different types of dance. Even though I think ballet is the greatest thing to take to, to, so, to plant the seeds, so to speak. It's the one um, tra uh, dance training that sort of like buoys you for all the others. Yeah, it's just taking ballet just helps you have, you know, portage port, and, and walk into a room and be able to, you know, bring everybody in and have good posture and all that kind of stuff. So I think it was a really great thing for me to start with. So when did you end up moving to New York and did you always know that you wanted to? Well, I, I went to college and got a dance degree because I thought that I that's what I wanted to be was a concert dancer because I was really getting into ballet and modern and kind of was doing and at the time when I was in, at school every small or industrial town you know uh, Milwaukee the, Detroit was a big industrial town but I remember I went to school in Ohio and every every town in Ohio Dayton Cincinnati Columbus Akron Cleveland Toledo they all had a dance company and maybe two because one was a modern company, one was a ballet company, the ones that would do the Nutcracker and things like that, do classical pieces. So uh, there was a time that the National Endowment for the Arts would help support these different regional companies all around the country, but that went away. And they weren't getting as much support, so as they were getting most of their uh, support from patrons and ticket sales, and that was it. So a lot of those companies closed down. And, uh, but because of uh, the fact that there was so many different companies, I thought, this is what I'd like to do. I want to be a concert dancer and be in a ballet company. And I did get to dance with the Ohio Ballet for a while when I was in college. And I got to do some wonderful uh, Robert Joffrey and some James, uh, Paul Taylor choreography and Gerald Arpino, who started the Joffrey Company originally here in New York. Uh, but 
then I realized mm, I need more. I need to express myself more. And I always loved to sing and tell jokes and do stuff like that. So I couldn't really do that in a ballet company. So uh, I ended up moving moving on and getting more into musical theater, but using my dance training as a springboard. And it was so helpful that I had such great training because at the time I went into the musical theater, it was when they were, companies were, uh, like the ensembles of shows were getting smaller and smaller. Like you had four, four singers and four boy singers, four girl singers, and they also had dance too. So you need to do everything. Mm-hmm. And so I was, ripe and ready for that because I had all that dance training, but then I'd sung all my life and felt very confident singing. So I was able to work pretty quickly out of the gate. Once I came to New York, I was very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the first things you did was, I believe the tour of a chorus line was- That was my, my, well, my first professional job in New York was uh, the Radio City Music Hall had a yearly summer show and this is before um this was i would say like almost 40 years 40 years ago now but they would do a big summer show all the tourists would go to it and the show i did was called encore and it was the 50th anniversary of radio city and i was one of the uh the lead singer dancers in their broadway section you know they'd have the rock cats and they'd have the glory of easter and they showed all these incredible moments over the past 50 years at radio city and then they had this broadway section 50 years of popular song and i was in that was my first big show and from there i went on to do uh, get get an audition for the national tour of a chorus line and when i got that i left radio city to do that and so was on the road for a little while and then came into Broadway. So that was my first Broadway show. Uh, when you joined the companies of a chorus line and back then, the original, the original companies, you had to not only play a role, but you had to understudy something else because there was so much crossing over because people would get injured, people would get sick. Uh, when you're traveling you know, to a few cities every night, it was just a pretty rigorous schedule. And so I knew four different roles and I started out playing Maggie Winslow, who was the girl who sings at the ballet uh, with the other two characters. But I also understudied Deanna Morales, Cassie and Bibi Benzenheimer. And during my career, I got to play all of them. Uh, But the final role I played was Bibi Benzenheimer in the Broadway company because I went back again to, to, I went away for a while did a flop show and came back and did it because Coors Light was running forever. And they said, oh, Siemba's show just closed. Get her back. We need her, you know, kind of thing. So, So, uh, but that was my debut, my Broadway debut. So what was the experience like of performing across the country at the young age that you were? Oh, I loved it. I loved it um, because I'd never been too many places and so I remember going to these 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 funny towns like in in the midwest that had like a, a boot uh, uh, a pool shaped like a cowboy boot <laughs> and things like that we went to New Orleans I went to New Orleans for the first time uh, a lot of midwestern cities uh, San Antonio Texas which was beautiful Fort Worth uh, uh, some really some really nice places in the south uh, of course, you know, 
you travel to Florida a lot because in the, in the winter time there's always a lot of theater going on for the for the people that have moved down there for the winter that love the theater. So it's getting to see all these different places was really fun, and I was young and had a lot of energy, and I could do the show at night, and I could you know putz you know putz around during the day, going to you know whatever the local museum was or whatever the local you know tourist trap was in that town but we had fun and I met a lot of great people and that's really what it's about it's like creating this other family that you travel with that's like your extended family and sometimes you keep those friends for the rest of your life it's it's, it's great so did Michael Bennett ever come in to sort of work on a course line after it had opened when you were the only time I met Michael Bennett was when we were actually closing the company in Pittsburgh. I don't remember, remember what year it was, but he came to see the final performance and to give a speech on stage. It was really beautiful. Uh, he was he was very sweet to all of us. I mean, so since you were joining the show after seven or eight years, did you get a lot of rehearsal going in or was no, there not a lot of time? Not a lot. Not a lot. And you saw, and I remember when I was on tour in Las Vegas with a chorus line, I would do the Cassie dance in the wings because the, the, the theaters backstage in Las Vegas were huge. So you had a whole nother stage practically in the wings of the theater. And I would do it every night with the Cassie on stage because unless you kept your wind up, you know, your aerobic, your heart rate up, you couldn't get through that thing. It's such a difficult dance. So I constantly was evolving and learning as I, as you toured in all the different cities. So. so what would you say that you learned from making your Broadway debut and with? Oh, it was very funny that the Paul that's next to me says, Karen, just because you're playing a Puerto Rican doesn't mean you have to wear gold earrings. <laughs> <laughs> I have these, these earrings on. Whatever I can do to make myself look more Latino. But it was more the attitude and everything that I needed. Deanne uh, Morales' attitude because that was the, that was the first role I played for a month and played that role because who had been playing it had just had a baby and she wasn't ready to come back. <laughs> or actually, I just left the national tour and I was hanging out and it was like, okay, she knows the show, bring her in. That was the one thing that was so great about knowing so many roles is that you could jump in at any moment and with a little bit of rehearsal just take off and do it. Yeah. So that's why I was fortunate. I was in the right place at the right time. Well, uh, the next Broadway show you did was 42nd Street as Peggy Sawyer. So how did you audition to? What was your audition like to come in and play? Uh, I had to tap dance for all of the powers that be at that time. Gower Champion, of course, had passed away. And at the time, David Merrick, the producer, had had a stroke. So he wasn't even on, in the picture oh. then. He was convalescing uh, and getting well. So the people in charge were the stage manager, uh, the assistant director, Lucia Victor, Randy Skinner, the choreog choreographic assistant, and Karen Baker, the choreographic assistant. They were the two people that helped Gower put all the dances together originally. And they were both great tap dancers. Uh, among other things, but I remember what kind of snagged it for me was we had to do a waltz clog, which is step, shuffle, change, step, shuffle, change, 
to a, to a three-quarter time. Like, it was just one of those things. Steps of purple chase, which is very different than one, two. Da, 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 da. It was, you had to go opposite the music. And because I nailed it, Karen Baker, the assistant, she said, hmm, yeah, she's, 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 she could do that part, in a, which was in a, to a, da, 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 a go into your dance, da -da 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 to this three-quarter time thing, because that's what I guess a lot of the dancers had trouble with, you know, grasping onto. So, so that was my, I remember very vividly that was, they went, oh, good, that's all I, she could do that. And then and I had to do some, you know, of course, had to do some copy from the show, you know, some some of the lines with uh, uh, whoever was whoever was reading with me at the time. But then I got this phone call a couple days later saying, uh, we need you to come back to the Majestic Theater. OK, this is the Majestic Theater before Phantom of the Opera. So this was a long time ago. <laughs> That's when, when um, 42nd Street had moved from the Winter Garden to the Majestic which is such a beautiful, beautiful theater. And uh, we want you to come down to the Majestic. We want you to stand next to Jerry Orbach. And I was like, oh, they're serious. So I was like, I didn't know how tall Jerry was. I mean, he seemed like a tall guy, but I, I, I was a pretty tall girl, so I wore kind of flat shoes. I didn't want to be too tall. Yeah. And I wore a dress, and I came in there, and I did some scenes with him. And I remember after we finished the scene, he kind of walked off the stage and went, <laughs> as he was walking off the stage, and I thought, oh, that looked positive. That looked like a good thing. And I had to do a scene with Leroy Reams, who was playing Billy Lawler. And it was mostly about the, doing the scenes. It was mostly about Jerry Orbach saying, yeah, she's good, or yeah, I could work with her, or whatever. And I got the job. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did it for like a year and a half. And after that, I forget what I went into for that, after that, but probably <laughs> went back to a chorus line. It was still <laughs> running. No, uh, but that was a wonderful experience, uh, getting to know Jerry and all those great people. At, and Jerry and I stayed friends for the rest of his life. And we actually did another production of 42nd Street uh, mm -hmm. years later uh, in its summer stock tour. So I know you were mentioning that David Merrick was convalescing at the time of your audition, but did you ever get to have any interaction with him? Yes. I met him and he still could not speak, but you could see those eyes looking around and checking out everything. And, um, but yes, that was the only time I met him. But his wife at the time was, was pulling the strings and, and was standing, up, standing in for him doing business and, you know, casting people and saying, yes, you can pay them that much. And, you know, she was the person that was sort of in charge of that. So thank goodness she, she liked me. <laughs> so I believe the next show you did was Understudying in Nonsense off Broadway. So. Oh, right. Okay. That was, yeah, that very good. Very good, Charles. You are, are a good researcher. So was your intent always to do comedic parts or did you ever think you wanted to do dramatic? Everything. Yeah. I mean, every actor wants to be versatile and get a stab at everything. And sometimes um, we have our forte, our forte, so to speak, is in, in a specific kind of performance. 
Like some people are really great at comedy and some people are really great at um, tragic drama. Some people can do it all. Uh, but there's so much of all of that inside of us that we just have to let it bring it up and, and inhabit these different characters that we play. But yeah, Nonsense was definitely a funny show and playing nuns. And I was not, uh, I did not grow up Catholic, so I wasn't familiar with uh, the nuns and Catholicism until I did that show. And it, oh. it was like a very eye-opening to me. But I remember putting on my habit for the first time, the outfit, and I thought, oh, I am a really pretty nun. I felt very beautiful as a nun, even though you didn't wear much makeup and you didn't, you know, you couldn't see your hair or anything like that. There was something very beautiful and serene about being a nun. But maybe that was because I liked Julie Andrews and Mary Martin so much and they were nuns. <laughs> it was like, oh, maybe I can do it because they did it. But uh, it was, I just remember it being a, a really wonderful experience and a lot of fun being, making so many people laugh. So the next Broadway show you appeared in was Teddy and Alice. So what was the sort of unique challenge as an actor of having to play characters that existed rather than? Well, that was, yeah, I played, um, I remember I played a Bell Hagner who was a reporter um, back at the time uh, during Teddy Roosevelt's presidency. And you know, a, a woman in that field was very, um, not, was not common, and she was a tough cookie. So um, you just, I don't think anybody really was probably still alive who knew her, possibly, mm -hmm. but, or who met her. So I didn't feel so badly about being exactly that <laughs> character, but, uh, but, but playing real people is very difficult. And it's, uh, it's, you have to have a lot of uh, <laughs> courage to do something like that. And some people are so great at it. Some um, doing the impersonation and doing the inhabiting somebody else's life like that. And maybe not looking, even looking so much like them, but the, the way they talk or the way they move. A lot of it is, is once you get into the clothing too, especially if it's, it's a period piece, that really helps you to create a certain character. That was very helpful in that turn of the century, kind of like corsets and hats and high collars. And it's the way you stand and the way you talk to somebody. People talk to people very formally back in those days. It's much more so than they do today. So it was, it was, it was wonderful doing a period piece. And that musical, the songs were all written, um, the lyrics were um, written to John Philip Sousa tunes who was, of course, John Philip Sousa, you know, one of the greatest patriotic uh, music writers of, of the day. And he didn't just write marches. He wrote yeah. waltzes and all different kinds of things. So they had a quite a panoply of things to write for, the, uh, Hal Hackety, the lyricist. And they were really great songs. So that was interesting, too, doing a piece that was um, based on John Philip Sousa music. Yeah. That was an ill-fated show. It didn't uh, last very long, but... I really enjoyed it. I, I was going to ask you, what did you think was the reason that it didn't last as long as some of the I don't know. Um, so sometimes it's just timing. Sometimes it's just people expect something different. Uh, you know, you don't know. Maybe the show isn't uh, 
financed properly so they don't have enough money to keep it going like in the, the, the slow months if you don't get the greatest reviews. I mean, there's some shows that don't get great reviews, but they just run because they, word of mouth and people say, no, it's a great show. You got to see it. So it just depends. It just depends on how, how you go into it before it actually, the show actually goes up. It's like, what's behind this? What's the engine behind this show? Just in case it isn't like a big smash. So that's a lot of what keeps shows going is um, every, everybody, everybody behind the scenes, which is so important. Yeah. Do, do you find that as an actor, you usually have a good instinct for whether the show you're in is going to be a hit or not as much? No. no. I mean, of course, there's certain things that I'm just very moved by. Uh, but some things I'm not really sure. I remember when I did, when I was uh, doing the workshop for Contact, and we were working on my particular piece of the show. There was three um, one acts in that show. And I remember inviting some friends and people close to me to see that, to, to tell me, what do you think? Do you think this is any good? Do you think this is... And uh, for some reason or other, because it was a very different kind of piece than I'd ever done before, I wasn't really sure. And they said, oh, Karen, this is, um, you should continue on with this piece. It's really moving and you're really good in it. And it's, I think it's really a special story you're telling. And so, I mean, I would have stayed with it anyway because it was created by two people who I admire so much, John Weidman and of course, Susan Stroman, one of my champions. Yeah. And I would have stayed with the show anyway for them, but uh, the fact that people were saying, no, this is really something very special and different and moving, and you need to continue on with it. And so that was, that really helped yeah. that everybody else felt that way too. Yeah. So one of the next shows you did was the tour of Jerome Robbins's Broadway. So yeah. did you like being able to do all these different classic roles at once? Yeah. I did. It was the, one of the hardest shows I've ever done in my life. It was so tiring because you were, you know, changing costumes and playing, putting on different makeup to play all these different characters. My, my, my track, uh, especially because I was playing all the kind of, you know, Brumacera, Mama Crook, all these kind of crazy, crazy characters. But it was Jerome Robbins, even though he was really tough to work with, he was a tyrant. Oh. Not that's the right word. He just, yeah, he could be really mean. But that being said, he, that was the most incredible choreography I'd ever done in my life. He just, he could make dance be like, it was just coming out of your pores, like as if you were just walking down the street. There's something about his work that is so truthful and it's not about steps as much as it is about the characters that, that's doing the movement. He's, 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 I don't like to use the word genius, but he is, he was, he really was. And he knew what he wanted. Um, but I, I remember when I was working with him crying a lot as after I would be in rehearsal just because he would say something to me that would hurt me so much and, and I couldn't cry in front of him. So I would let cry afterwards. Um, and I was one of the oldest people in that company, but I wanted to do that show very much be just because how much I admired his work. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and he would and he put me in a lot of different things I think I was in I can't even remember it but I think I was in like eight or nine different sections of that um, playing different characters and it was fantastic but he he was a tough guy <laughs> he, was, he was tough on me but maybe but somebody said to me later one of his assistants said that's because he liked you Karen that was the way he got got through to you you know kind yeah. of browbeating me whatever whatever <laughs> that was his that was his way <laughs> so was the rehearsal process as long as it was famously long for Broadway no, it wasn't uh, because it had already been staged. He had his incredible team of dance captains and assistants put that show up. And I remember learning it because most of the cast returned to do the national tour, which I did. It actually, I, I did it only in Los Angeles though, because I moved on to do And the World Goes Round after that. But I did was with it in Los Angeles. And, and I believe that is that is the version that was um, captured for the archives at Lincoln Center oh. Library. That's where they fi finally filmed it. So I, I'm in that. Yeah, it was, uh, it, that, that was a, a great experience. I love doing Jerome Robbins Broadway. I'm so glad I did it, even though it was, it was difficult. It was tough, but it was, I'm glad I did it. Got to be able to do his work and meet him. <laughs> It was like one of these, my name is Karen, Mr. Robbins, not, you know, he'd call you like, he'd make up names for you or something. He's just, he couldn't either, couldn't remember, didn't care, but he couldn't reason with the guy. He said, you know, doing the work. That's what it's about. Just doing the work. So it was, it was an experience. Yes. What was the show itself always well received on the road? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It, uh. So many, I mean, so many big, hot, fabulous numbers, one after the next. It was, it was jam-packed. And there's nothing like the West Side Story suite, uh, just to hear that music. That was the first musical I ever did in my life back in high school, so that's where I started. Mm -hmm. So to do that um, again, but do his choreography and play those, the, the kids in the dream, you know, and finding out what his reasons were for the kids coming out of squalor and into this beautiful light and, and dancing was, uh, and, and being happy. It was uh, to, to know what the reasons were he created those dances in that way. So I love that so much. But there was a lot of other fun stuff in that, in that show that, uh, that I'd never even seen before, knew um, before that I was part of um, the Billion Dollar Baby ballet uh which was um i played the charleston couple and it was not there was no singing it was all danced it was just the greatest piece one of the greatest pieces i've ever been part of and have ever seen the, the humor that he put into it and the joy yeah loved it so as you were mentioning, your next thing that you did was And the World Goes Round, the Candor and Ebb review. So how did you get involved with this at first? I auditioned for it. They were looking for uh, a fifth person who could sing and dance. And I had just worked with a friend of the director and the choreographer. I worked with a guy named 
Ted Pappas, who was the director of a, of a revival of pajama, the pajama game at City Opera. Mm -hmm. And I understudied in that, and I had to go on as Gladys a couple times in the pajama game. And so I had to work with Ted Pappas. And he put me into that show in like less than a day. I'd learn that part and perform it a couple times at New York City Opera, which is like, you know, yeah, yeah. 4,000 people. <laughs> and so when I auditioned for And the World Goes Around, there was no social media at the time. And so you had to call your friend and say like, hey, didn't you just work with this person? So what do you think? You think do they have a good reputation? Do you think they're, you know, they work hard? Do you think they could rise to the occasion? Do you think they're gonna, a good team player, whatever? And I just worked with Ted. He said, yeah, you should hire this person. She's, she's, I just worked with her. We had a great experience. She did a great job for me. And so he helped me get that job. <laughs> yes. I think that happens a lot. I think that people who appreciate your work and who work with you, and I would do the same thing for anybody else. Somebody asked me, so what do you think of this person? So like, oh, yeah, you got to hire them. They're terrific. You're going to love working with them. And they, people have done that for me too. So I, a lot of, a lot of friends in this business to thank for that very thing, for being in my corner. Yeah, yeah. So since this was also a, since it was a review and you were in the original cast, did you have any sort of pull over what you got to do in it? What songs? Okay. No, I did not. Uh, Scott Ellis. Susan Stroman and David Thompson, a la Tommy Thompson, they all structured the piece very specifically for each different kind of individual. Everybody was very different in the show. And, you know, you had the big torch singer and then you had the soprano and you had, but everybody got to do comic bits. Everybody had to play instrument. Everybody had to roller skate. Everybody had to dance a little bit. I had to dance a lot, but everybody that everybody worked their buns off in that show because there was only five of us and it was a lot of music but uh no i did not get a choice i mean i would make suggestions or uh or i would say i remember this the first time i said no no stroman i i don't want to do that i don't think that come on casey just try it it's going to be funny believe me and so she was right so from now on I say yes to Susan Stroman. I would try it at least a few times. And then if it doesn't work, she'll go like, yeah, let's try something else. But. So being that it was a Candor and review, were they themselves around a lot or? Yes. Yes, I had to audition for John and Fred. And I tell the story some quite a lot, of, quite a lot actually, that uh, it was the first time I'd ever been treated with such respect and grace by somebody in an audition. Uh, but that's just the way those two gentlemen are. Yeah. Um, and I remember John Kander got up from behind the table, walked around and came up to me, shook my hand, said, I'm John Kander. That was very nice. Could you please sing it a step higher? <laughs> <laughs> But it wasn't like him behind the table. Yeah, what else you got? You got a ballad? You know, it wasn't, he had this very sweet, respectable, kind of gentlemanly way about him and treated me as if I was an equal. And I thought, wow, I've never experienced that before. He was really, he's a, he's a very special man, along with being a very gifted composer. And 
lyricist too. He's done a lot of his own lyrics too, since um, Fred Ebb passed away. But uh, he's 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 up there. He's up there in the stratosphere as far as human beings go, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. So. What were some of your favorite Candor and Ebb songs that you got to sing in And the World? Oh, oh, there's too many to mention. I love A Quiet Thing uh, from Flora the Red Menace. Um, Arthur in the Afternoon from the act, that was fun. And also uh, the way Susan Sherman choreographed it, it was very funny, cheeky. Um, I loved a lot of the songs I didn't get to sing. Uh, and have sung since, <laughs> like the title song of Chorus and the, all the songs from Cabaret are so beautiful. Uh, yeah. So I believe this was the first in a long string of successful collaborations with you and Susan Stroman. So were you sort of drawn to each other from the start? I guess. I think because she'd tell me to do something and I would make it happen and we'd have fun. Well, she, that's partially her. I mean, she's just, she's just fun to work with. She's demanding. She, she loves what she does. It's not a chore. It's something that she, she can't wait to, wait to get in a room and work. And she's just got a great sense of humor and she's got a big heart. So all that put together, can't, wow, what, what can, what can be bad? And I just, I just loved being in that sort of um, environment and uh, we got on really well and the show did well and so it was like hey let's do something else together or she was saying that to them say well, what do we what, what do we got on the docket that we'd like to work on now so but after in the world goes round i did uh crazy for you which was a show of hers so that was because of that um and the world goes round. she probably thought oh Casey, she'd be she'd be a good candidate for that role in Crazy for You. So that came later for me too because of her, and because of her um, believing in me. And so, so you started, I believe, again on tour with Crazy for You as you had for a chorus line. Yep. So, is this something that you'd originally wanted to do on Broadway, or something that you discovered? I didn't get it. Um, the Broadway company uh, was nice. I got to come back and do it there after all. I got to, and, and I brought it to the end of its run too. So I did that show for a little. That was a, that was the show I'd done longer than any other show. Uh, it was so much joy, and and I the, I love the people, and just listening to Gershwin every night, the Gershwin music every night, just. A great place to go to work. It really was. You were saying that you'd done that show for the longest you'd done any show. How do you avoid sort of getting, I don't want to say bored with a show, but how do you sort of keep it fresh after doing it for a long time? Well, you have a different audience every night and you do it for each other, not just about you. It's about who you play opposite, all the people that you relate to on stage. It's about the people who help you get into your clothes and <laughs> turn the lights on you. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's this big world that 
the show doesn't go on without all of those little pieces. It's like a big puzzle. Um, so that's part of it. But it's keeping it fresh. You hear that music and you hear live music from an orchestra or any kind of great music. It's that also fuels fuels me. Yeah. But a lot of it is who who, who you're playing opposite. And if you put that out that you're fresh and you're ready to go, it, hopefully it'll wear it'll you know bounce off of somebody else. Yeah. Um, doesn't always work that way, but I've been pretty lucky. I've worked with some really great people. So having had this method of coming into a show twice with going on the road first and then coming to Broadway, is this something you like doing? Does it make it easier in any way? Or Well, when you're replacing on Broadway, definitely, because you've done, you've actually done the show in on a big stage in front of audiences somewhere. So when you come in, you're not totally like a fish out of water. Um, to just learn something in a rehearsal room and bring it on stage is a little bit more difficult. So it is a nice way to get your feet wet. If in fact you are not the original person playing the role, if you're the original person, you get that time on stage prior to an opening. Yeah. But as a replacement, you get replaced really quickly. <laughs> uh, I remember with Chicago, um, I had done that for a few months on tour before I came in. And it was like, yep, here's the band, here's the cast, put in your costume, we're gonna run through this right now. And you better just, you just better be there and hit all your marks, because it's all different people. So when, but when you've actually done it and actually performed it in a big theater before, uh, I think, where did I come from with that? I think I had just played the Schubert in the Schubert in New Haven, and then came into the Schubert on Broadway. Oh. The theaters were similar, and so I was ready. Is the staging usually all the same or much the same on tour as on Broadway? Uh, yeah, except the personalities are very different playing the roles. So you have to get used to like new people, and they're. <laughs> I mean, the, the timing is pretty much the same as far as like, especially with the comedy and the entrances and the exits and things, but the intent or maybe, the, like I said, the, uh, the underlying individual is very different. It, their individuality is very different. So it's just, you have to kind of like work your way and, and play off what you're getting from them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you one more question about Susan Stroman, about your collaboration. What do you think it is about your styles that sort of go so well together that you've been able to create so much great stuff? I don't know. She really, she really loves ballet. And uh, a lot of her stuff is not very uh, like difficult strange, odd ballet-based, but it's very basic, simple, um, a ballet structure into, she can then go into a real show-busy thing, but it's very much pulled up and kind of uh, has this sort of, like, beautiful presentational yeah. aura about it. Uh, not all, but a lot of it. And, because she knows how to build a number from 
somewhere to the razzmatazz to get it out there and to get everybody on their feet. So I think that I just, I don't know. I, I don't know what it was that uh, I, but you just, you just kind of like read each other's, read each other's mind after a while, or can mm -hmm. I try this or could I, but it, it, it goes back and forth. Um, I'll say like, oh, maybe I should try it doing it this way is or turning this way as opposed to this which well, yeah let's try that uh it's not always in stone but stro is so stroman is so prepared before she goes into rehearsal she knows she has she has it in her in her in, she's envisioned it and has everything kind of laid out and knows what she's going to see it's as if it's a moving painting and then she puts you into it so that's what I love about her though, is because she says, we're gonna do this, we're gonna try this. And so it's already it's already set there for you to try. It doesn't always work and you might change she might change it, but she just can come in here, oh let's doodle around here. She knows what she wants. And I, it, it makes it, it it makes it a little bit easier for um, the performer, for somebody who's very specifically has very specific ideas. And then you just bring it to life and put your personal stamp on it. So what is your opinion? Because you've done a lot of sort of reviews and jukebox musicals like this. Do yeah. you like doing things like that of like shows based on one composer's songs? You know, I, it doesn't really, one, one to another, like whether it's a full story or whether it's, um, a jukebox musical, uh, like I said, if it's good material, it's good material, and you have a good time. Um, but I've done a lot of the lyrics and lyricists uh, series uh, at the at the Y um, on the East Side, and we I've done so many composers and lyricists uh, evenings of those too, and I've learned so much about them and of their music and their lyrics depending on who we were honoring. Uh, so I really enjoy that. It's just made me, given me a broader spectrum of, of, of music that I know now and that I can pull from and that I can appreciate. Um, so I, I, I like it all. Yeah. So after Crazy For You, what you did was the revised I Do, I Do with David Garrison at the Lamb. So what are the sort of challenges of having to do a two-person show of only having one other person on stage or? It's a lot of work. <laughs> I guess there's only two of you. But uh, quick costume changes. Somebody's in the wings doing putting on their ne next uh, costume while this person's on stage doing their number. But what was fascinating about doing that show was aging 50 years. Oh. And that was very eye-opening for me. I remember as I would put on the next wig, I would look in the mirror and say, oh my goodness, I'm my mother. <laughs> Becoming my mother. But that was okay, because she was a good lady. Yeah. But it's like, wow, this is really fascinating how you transform yourself into an older person or playing a younger person, but the same person. And that was... That was fabulous work to do, and those costumes too. Going through the years, uh, fifty years of style of fashion, 
that was really cool too. And David Garrison, he's, I've had some really fabulous leading men. He's one of them. He's, he's a wonderful, act, generous actor and funny. What was it like to be able to collaborate with Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt as they were revi revising their original show? Well, you know, they were revising it in that they wanted to make it more current some of the lyrics, um, how they how women feel differently about things now than they did back in the 1960s when they wrote the score. Yeah. Uh, uh, that was great. And we also, uh, I also worked with um, Harvey and Tom on 110 The Shade at City Opera. And we did, did that original show too, but the original score and everything, but also, but I, in that show, I asked to, if, uh, and Richard Nash, the writer of The Rainmaker, who was still with us then and was at rehearsals every, practically every day, said, could we put a little bit of the play in this section before this song? Because it was such beautiful writing. I love that play. And Harvey and Tom would be like, okay, you know, it's you know, <laughs> something that wasn't in the original. But they, they said, oh, it's okay. That's fine. Uh, so they were kind of revising that as we were working through that, too, in little, little yeah. tiny places. Yeah. But uh, I, they're, they're wonderful to work with, too, those two guys. We had a lovely, uh, lovely relationship, and I, I, I still talk to Tom on occasion. He's still going strong, still writing and working. So I do want to ask, is the experience different when you're doing a show in a smaller theater because the, you were doing it off-Broadway at the Lambs Theater? And oh, very intimate. I love, do, I love doing work in intimate theaters because of the the audience is so palpable. I mean, they're right there. And you don't always, uh, you don't always have to wear a mic in a smaller theater, which is nice. It's a little bit more freeing. <clears throat> and that was a, um, a two piano orchestration, two grand piano or orchestrations. So there wasn't, we weren't fighting against um, electronic instruments and things like that. So didn't, I don't even know if we were mic'd in that show. I can't remember now. But uh, but being able to sit at the edge of the steps there in the Lambs Theater and be right there practically sitting in the audience was very confronting and also but also very warm and mm -hmm. engaging, I thought. And I think that sh there's something about that show that is very intimate, too, and very uh, emotional that's nice to have the audience very close to you. So your next Broadway show was starring in Steel Pier. So how did you get this? What was your audition process like too? Well, because I had worked with Susan Stroman, John Kander, Fred Ebb, Scott Ellis, the same team that had done And the World Goes Round, that was a piece that they had in mind for me as they were working on that. And so that's how that happened. I didn't have to audition for that. But I was involved in the auditions in reading with different leading men, which was a, an interesting experience. Yeah. How, seeing how the different gentlemen would take on the role and do the scenes and audition just singing. And being on that side of the table was, I think every actor should be on the other side of the table just to have that feeling of what it's like to watch somebody walk through the door. 
and give an audition. It's yeah. uh, very eye-opening um, as a performer to see that. It kind of makes me nervous thinking about it because as auditioning for me never gets easy. Yeah. Because it's always, you know, because you're being judged, of course, but it's because it, you just, even, even as successful as you become, you just always want to keep getting better and better. And so you kind of put, I kind of put pressure on myself. But uh, being able to audition, be an auditioner, looking at other people's work was good for me to know what not to do, what to do, what or what I would or would not do myself. So um, it was a good learning experience. Yeah. Do you still have to audition a lot? Or I know being the big star that you are, maybe you don't it's as much. Of course, yeah, especially for um, film and television, things like that. Yeah. You do now. We're doing all self taping because uh, of the pandemic. Um, yeah. But I do. I'm fortunate. I do get offered every once in a while, which is nice. So uh, going back to Steel Pier, what was it like to be in a room with Candor and Ebb, sort of in a different context as they were developing a new piece? Always good. Uh, they would ugh, they would write a song one night and we'd put it in put it in rehearsal and they'd say nah we don't like that one let's do another they would, they would write the songs so fast it was amazing and there was a lot of great songs that we did in workshops of Steel Pier that were never used oh. great songs they've got a trunk load full of them mm. in fact I when I did a, an uh, a, an album. For, a double album of John Candor's for this thing called Treasures, musical treasure. I can't remember the name yet. Uh, I, I sang a song that my character sang called Nobody's Fault on it that uh, was cut from the show at one point. But yeah, I don't know what we put in place of it, but so there was stuff that's out there. Yeah. Cut songs in Steel Pier, and there were, there were a few. So do you prefer developing original musicals to replacing or doing revivals? Yes. Yes and yes. Uh, it's, it, it really makes you reach down deep and in your creative juices because you're starting from scratch. Uh, so it's a little bit more difficult. You have nothing to base it on. Yeah. Uh, so that's always like a great challenge. But as far as stepping in, stepping into a role though, it's anytime you get a chance to play anything that's a great, that if it's a great role and a great show, hey, I'm, I'll do that too. It's just that being able to create something from scratch is, is, is a very, very fortunate if you get a chance to do that. So, was, what was it like to work with the cast, a lot of whom were making their Broadway debuts, notably Kristen Chenoweth and also a lot of others? Oh, it was good. Uh, and the thing with Steel Pier and maybe one of the things that wasn't good about, about it was that there were so many great, like, featured characters in that show. It's like, whose story am I following? I mean, there were so <laughs> many great stories in that show. Kristen's being one of them. And uh, I mean, I just knew from the get go that this little 
this little ball of fire, she was going to be something really, she was going to be a star. It was pretty obvious. She was so talented and so unique and a really nice person too. Really good lady. So I was going to ask you that show, unfortunately, wasn't as successful as maybe it deserved to be. Is there, you were mentioning the many plots, is there another reason or a reason why you think? No, I don't know. I mean, I think we needed more time with it. Anytime you're working on an original piece, like a lot of a lot of them go out of town and work on yeah. it and do it in front of a real audience. And I wish we would have had the, the opportunity to do that. I think we would have figured out some things. Um, but what I did take away from it was was magnificent. It was one of those shows where people were in each other's arms all night because it was a dance marathon. And each character in that show had to be responsible for somebody else, yeah. along with the, the entire cast. But you literally were holding somebody all night long, unless you changed the costume and you came back and you were still like, in the story, holding that person, sometimes going backwards, sometimes going forward, sometimes they were hanging on you, sometimes you were like joyful, sometimes you were practically dead on your feet. So when you were, it's, it's like such, so the a 360 degree turn from what we're going through now where we're so isolated and we can't touch people and we can't hug people as something like that. What, what that did to that company made everybody so literally so tight and so much a family because of that too, uh, was like a show like none other than I'd ever done, you know? Yeah. So, along with it being an original show and we were all creating it for the first time, but there were extra stakes to it, you know, higher stakes to it because of that. So I want to ask you your opinion on reviews in general. Do you read them and then do you think they have too much power or? I do sometimes. I like to read them more after the fact as opposed to, you know, uh, I mean, look, maybe like, a few weeks after the fact, as opposed to right after. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that they have probably as much power as they used to when people used to read, like everybody used to read the New York Times or the Post or the or the either the Daily News. So, so the Newsday, we had so many theater critics that everybody read, depending on where you lived and what paper you got. Now things are everything is marketed very differently. Uh, so a lot of it is like, you know, how can you just keep this, this, this show running and how do we hawk it before it even goes up? How do we think about marketing so much more? I mean, marketing has always been important with theater, but it's, uh, really important now because of the fact that people don't necessarily read a review uh, of a show. I mean, you can always get, there's so many now online if you want to research and do that kind of thing. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, if I see something and I really like it, I'm going to tell people about it. And, but I will also say I didn't care for something too. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the people in it aren't great and there aren't certain things about it that aren't great, that are great, but it's just something just doesn't quite gel or it didn't, didn't move me or it didn't, I walked away kind of feeling like, uh, or whatever. Does there, there are, and then some other people would say like, oh, I really, I really dug it, you know? 
So everybody has their own opinion about it, um, certain things. But as far as reviews go, I, I still like the fact that I, I like it when theater is, is considered something of importance, that there are critics out there that can um, at least give it, give theater its credence, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, out and out nastiness, though, who needs it? As far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yuck. So the next show you came into was already a very long running one when you did it, which was Chicago, the revival of Chicago. So did Candor and Ebb sort of ask you to do this while you were doing Steel Pier? Or? No, uh, but the director did, Walter Bobby, the director. And I'd work, worked with Walter Bobby um, in A Grand Night for Singing, which was done first at Rainbow and Stars at Rockefeller Center before it was done at the Roundabout. And Walter then became one of the artistic directors at, at Encores at City Center, and then he became the director of Chicago at Encores, and then which came to Broadway. So he said, so Karen, what are you gonna do now? Um, well, I said, well, I'm gonna stay with Steel Pier for a while. It's like, he sort of was already, had the, saw the writing on the wall with that show that may not, might, might not have much of a future but I wasn't going to leave that show. My goodness, it was my, I created it. I was just going to walk out. But he said, you know, we'd love you to join the cast of Chicago. And I said, well, I'm staying with Steel Pier uh, right now. And so when the, the opportunity came up for another company, when it finally went up, uh, I got the chance to do it then. So it wasn't, it was, it was later. That's how it works sometimes. Yeah. So when you're doing a role that has been done by a few people and great people, including the late Anne Ryan King and Gwen Verdon, how do you sort of manage to put your own stamp on it? So for me, it was about really mastering those specific moves of his, which were foreign to me. So that was my task. And as a really well-trained dancer, I was able to eventually master it, but it's going to be with my personal kind of movement that I have. Yeah. And, but that's what's kind of cool about Roxy and Velma, those characters, is that they're very different individuals, but when they dance together, they dance as one in their own style, but precisioned. Yeah. And that's what's so great about the hot honey rag in that shows they finally get together and they are thinking coming from the same mind and moving the same and I got to do that show on Broadway with BB knew her first and she was so precise and so it had the Fosse down so great her body was made to do that kind of movement and so when I was playing opposite her it was like you better get it together girl <laughs> She's, she's got it down, and uh, I loved d dancing with her and playing opposite her. She was very generous to me and uh, welcomed me into that company, and I really appreciated that from her. So that production is now sort of famous for having stunt 
casting. So were you doing it at any point with any of the kind of TV stars or pop stars that they sort of have? I did it with Alan Thicke. I don't know if you know him, it's Robin Thicke's father. And Alan Thicke was a celebrity TV guy. Uh, and what was in it, he played the father in that series, uh, that sitcom with Kirk, he played Kirk Cameron's dad, I believe, uh, back in the 70s or 80s, I can't remember now, but that Alan Thicke was in that. Played with, did it with him one time. Who else did I work with that was a celebrity? don't think I, Joel Gray, I mean, I think of him as a celebrity. I did it with Joel Gray. He came in to play Amos for a while. He did, was he playing Amos on Broadway when I came? I think he still might have been doing it or came back to do it again. I can't remember now, but so I got to work with Joel. But other than that, um, I was in the company early enough where they hadn't really done a lot of that kind of casting yet. That came later when, you know, TV stars and um, and uh, fashion, you know, Christy Brinkley and and uh, movie stars like Melanie Griffith. I, I mean, she's a wonderful actress. I, I guess, but I guess you could call it stunt casting since she was, you know, very very famous and was married to Antonio Banderas at the time, <laughs> who was also on Broadway uh, then. But I, no, I, but that was about it. That was about as close as I came to being with like what you call like a celebrity. Yeah. So your next Broadway role was in Contact. So how did you first get involved with this production? Well, Susan Stroman uh, was working on this this piece uh, at Lincoln Center Theater downstairs, and she was putting together this uh, this kind of like dance piece, uh, which was the girl in the yellow dress with at, at, went to the club, the guy who was the, the ad exec who wants to end his life and he meets this girl in the yellow dress at this club and it was this, just this one, one, this one act piece. And I went to see it and I thought, wow, this is really amazing. The music that she's using, all this different kind of music that you would use and have in a dance club. And then she said to me, I was doing Chicago at the time, she, she said, uh, Casey, how would you like to... Uh, I'm thinking about making this whole show into a, a full two-act piece, but I have to add a couple more stories to this evening. And I'd like to, you know, work with you on something. So I'm going to send you the music. And so she sent me these tapes of this ballet music, you know. Yeah. Eugene Onegin and, uh, you know, uh, anyway, it was Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic. It's like, what? this has nothing to do with that. What, what? She goes, oh, no, your piece is going to be the ballet music. And I said, the classical music. I said, it's like, how am I going to dance this? I have to do ballet. She said, that's right. <laughs> You're going to be doing ballet. I said, okay, well, that's how I started. So I guess that's what I'm going to do. And But it was so much more than ballet. It was it was really more of a, a play with ballet in it. Yeah. Uh, a dance play and that was the one I was talking about before it was like I wasn't really sure what is this piece gonna be and uh, people said no 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 this is this is very special you gotta you gotta stick this one out you gotta find out where this is going and sure enough it was like this very entertaining moving piece of theater the whole the whole show in, in its entirety and it did very well very well. 
So did you find that it changed and developed a lot during the rehearsals from? Sure. Again, Susan Stroman knew exactly what she wanted, but sometimes mistakes happen and like, keep that in. Oh, that's great. That's funny. Or, oh, you're going to jump over that way. Oh, that's even better. Or, or that fell into the pit. Oh, well, that's funny. Let's keep that. It, all different kinds of things would happen. Uh, but her ideas, uh, how she put, she's got it all mapped out in her mind. She's pretty, she's spectacular that way. So as an actor, in addition to being a dancer, was it ever sort of frustrating to not be able to speak on stage? In that piece, you mean in contact? Yeah. Uh, no. Um, I mean, I had a, f a few lines so you would know who this character was and get a feeling of what she was going through. And the rest of it was was told through movement and facial expressions and body language. And we all do that in life. Tell a story about uh, how we're feeling and you don't always have to speak the words for it to come across. So it was just a different way of being an actor and yeah. telling that story. So um, what do you think was the long running and the universal power of that show that it has been such a success? It was, there, there was hope. There was hope in the end of that show that people will carry on. My particular piece was, was more bittersweet. Um, I would continue on and maybe not live happily in my real life, that I would have to keep going into my fantasies if I wanted to have any pleasure in life. Uh, but in that final act of contact, there was hope that this man was going to live his life and maybe have, find happiness. Yeah. So I think that's, that's the key. You walk away like, oh, it's going to be all right. So what was the experience like on Broadway of doing a show where you are only doing about one third of it? It went by so fast. I don't know. I would, I would watch the show. I would watch the second half. Um, and you could always hear the music as it was going. So there were certain parts that I liked. <laughs> I wanted to go out and watch. Uh, but it's, it went by very quickly. We were all in the finale, in the curtain call. I mean, so we had to stick around. Yeah. And, but I remember that it just, you know, when you do eight shows a week, your life has so much purpose and you're, it's, it's on such a schedule that your life goes by so quickly. And you think, gosh, you do a show for what happened what just happened this uh this purposefulness that you have going through that stage door every night warming up doing what you got to do doing the show and then coming down from that and then you do it again and then you do it again it's like wow life just goes right by so quickly so it wasn't boring at all so we were sort of talking about this before but 
having sort of the method of communication through movement instead of words is that something that sort of came naturally to you when you um, starting out as a ballet dancer of course that's how you speak is through your body and through your expression how you carry yourself yeah. and uh, I think I probably learned a lot of that doing all those nutcrackers every year at holiday time yeah you learn how to act through movement into the music and you know, all, all the all the kids around the Christmas tree and the Drosselmeyer and the, the Nutcracker and the Mouse King and everything else and going to the Kingdom of the Sweets it's just it's all the story is told but you don't say a word yeah comes across <laughs> so what was it like to win a Tony for this? And I also want to ask you about your three other nominations. It was fantabulous. It was great. It was being honored for something that I love to do. And I've been working at it a long time. Yeah. Very grateful and lucky girl that I was in a show that was so magnificent too, which buoyed everything else you know you can be doing a great performance in a show that maybe isn't working so well and that's doesn't give you as much of a leg up so to speak but in contact it was such a beautiful evening of theater that being part of that just lifted me up too and so it was just a good year all around it was a good good season all around for me <laughs> So did you feel that your career changed or anything changed really once you won a Tony or, and been in such a success? Tony Ward winner, Karen Ziemba. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that changed. Uh, I think people um, in my business, in our business, uh, the, in the theater business, think of it as a great, a great, notching your belt, uh, but uh, but you have to keep rising to the occasion. You can't rest on your laurels at all. And the thing that's interesting about winning the Tony Award is that unlike other awards, like the Academy Award or the SAG Award or the Spirit Award for film or for television, the Emmys, you, even though you won an award, you gotta get up the next day and do the show again and again and again. You don't get to rest, you know. In fact, you probably are performing the night that you're nominated, so you gotta go backstage. And it's and then you gotta go back, you know. And if you don't, if you don't um, receive an award, then you still gotta show up the next day and go back to work and be part of your show and be proud of that. It's it just it, it doesn't stop. No rest for the weary. <laughs> yeah, the whirlwind of a time it really is. But, but I wouldn't have traded it for anything. It's, it's like I said, I'm grateful. So I want to take a quick detour from your Broadway career to ask you about the many encores productions that you've done. So you did Bye Bye Birdie, Pajama Game, and On Your Toes, I know. So what is the experience like of doing a show in a fast time as at encores? You just got to really be prepared when you come in, learn the music, be very, um, you know, it, a lot of it is doing like your own work at home prior, 
But a lot of the work comes from like the director and the choreographer, the way they have to be so prepared too. And your mind just has to be really lucid. It's it's quick. It's it's quick. But uh, I was familiar with Bye Bye Birdie. I was familiar with the pajama game. And at the time, we were using our books much more than they have more recently, which is how it started out. Because I also did Allegro. My first one was Allegro by Rodgers and Hammerstein. And my last one was Do I Hear a Waltz? Um, Stephen Sondheim and Richard Rodgers. And you could use your book a little bit, but for the most part, you wanted to kind of throw it away just because you want to perform, especially in that beautiful mm -hmm. theater that my grandmother sent, used to sing in. It's just so cool. That was coming full circle for me, working at City Center. But I always love doing the encores because there's nothing like working in front of a full orchestra that has the original instrumentation that it had when it was written and when it was performed on Broadway, which doesn't usually happen anymore. It's just too expensive. Do you have any specific memory or story about doing any one of those productions? Oh my goodness, there was, oh, there's another one that I did called um, Ziegfeld Follies of 1936. 1936, was it? Yeah, yeah, I think. I can't remember what year. Yeah, 1936. I loved that. That was another review type thing. And I did, got to do a couple of numbers with the Walton brothers, Jimmy and Bob Walton. And Jimmy and Walton and I played opposite each other and Anne the World Goes Round. So that was sort of a coming home moment there. That was so much fun. I enjoyed that. And that wasn't one of their big hits, but it was still <laughs> such a joy to be part of that. And it reminded me a little bit of that Radio City show that I had done that had the Rockettes and a little bit of ballet and a little bit of this and some jokes and some stuff. It was it was a Follies. That's what the Ziegfeld Follies did. They had the comedians. They had, you know, Fanny Bryce did her thing. The ballet dancers did their thing. And then we came on and did our little dance and song, songlet. I, I, I really enjoyed that. Those things happened so quickly, those shows. Uh, and then they were done. Like, you do five performances and it was done. It was like, oh, we're just getting started. I don't want it to end. Yeah. But... I worked with some really wonderful, I worked with Jerry Zachs there, John Rando, Mark Waldrop, some great directors in, in that, uh, doing the Encore series. Um, Evan, Evan Cabinet uh, directed uh, Do I Hear a Waltz. Is there another forgotten musical that you would like to do there? Gosh, there's, I don't think they've ever done Roberta, which is a Jerome Kern musical, just to hear that score. And there's different reasons why they don't do certain ones. I, yeah. I wanted them to do Do I Hear a Waltz for a long, long time. And I was like, when are you going to do Do I Hear a Waltz? They finally did Do I Hear a Waltz. Uh, and I remember Stephen Sondheim came to the rehearsal, and the look on his face was, boy, you could tell he was really moved by it, hearing it again, because it's not done very often. And it was like, almost like the look in his face was like, you know, this was a pretty good show. This was a beautiful show and not a bad score. I'm pretty proud of it. I just got the feeling from him. Just looking at it. But maybe I was just well projecting that onto him. But I think he I think he was moved sure. and uh, enjoyed sure. himself. Mm -hmm. a lot. So, 
So have you or would you ever want to do another full Stephen Sondheim role? Yes, I would. In fact, before the pandemic hit, I was supposed to go to San Francisco to do a production of Follies. Oh. And hopefully I'll get a chance to do that in the future, whether it be there or somewhere else. But I was looking forward to that. That's what I had not done yet. I did um, played Mrs. Lovett in a production of Sweeney Todd for the Michigan Opera Theater last year at this time, last well, last November, and I had done that also at the Opera Theater of St. Louis a few years ago, but those were with opera companies, so we got to get it with a full orchestra. It was so great, uh, but yeah, I would love to do more Sondheim. Were you going to play Sally in Follies, or? I was. I would love to see that, so. Uh, me too. Positive feelers on for that one. Yeah. So the next Broadway show that you worked on was Never Gonna Dance. So mm -hmm. tell maybe our listeners a little bit about what this show was about or like. Well, Never Gonna Dance was loosely based on Swing to the Movie Swing Time with Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Mm -hmm. And it was all Jerome Kern tunes. So there's a lot, uh, some Jerome Kern tunes were added to it that were not in the movie. And singing, I had to sing a couple of uh, not very well-known Jerome Kern tunes in it, I remember, except I get to sing, uh, I hear music when I look at you. Uh, the song is you with Peter Garrity. It was actually his song. I get to sing a couple of lines and he was pushing me around on a dessert cart or something like that. I, I get pushed around on dessert carts a lot in the shows I do. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> he was pushing me in, on a dessert cart in the automat and uh, in the scene and singing to me. So that was the, probably the most famous current song in that show that I got to sing. Uh, but that was that was wonderful. There was such beautiful dancing in that show. Jerry Mitchell uh, choreographed that. Michael Greif directed, and two very very gifted guys too. That was a lot of fun, and I got to play sort of a smart talking gal. So that was fun. So what do you think it is about your style of performing that lends itself to doing a lot of? not revivals, but sort of golden age style shows? I got a big mouth, I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know, I just, uh, a lot, yeah, a lot of it is that, that kind of style, that kind of like, you know, give it all away sort of style. Not, not, uh, not too subtle. <laughs> so you, another thing, another sort of benefit thing you did was starring in the benefit of A Wonderful Life on Broadway. So it's a wonderful life. So what was it like to work with Sheldon Harnick who wrote this? Um, well, Sheldon Harnick, he's, I just worked with Sheldon Harnick this past year, actually. We did a, um, a little evening at the York Theater uh, called uh, uh, their Legacy uh, series where we did all, all Sheldon Harnick um, stuff. He's, he's an amazing guy too, uh, still working, still with us and do oh, well, well into his nineties. He's like a poet. He's, his lyrics and, and the shows I think of like Fiorello and 
the characters, how he writes for these characters. He's he, he's and she loves me, which is like one of the most perfect little musicals ever ever created. Uh, he's a delicious writer and also another really great human being. Can you tell us a little bit about how the what the musical of that was like since there is no recording? I don't think. You know, I I remember that in in particular, but it it is a shame that 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 was never recorded because there's some really lovely music in that. There it all got, comes down to expense putting together to to have a recording made in this country is so expensive just because of the, the what the rental of the recording studio the, pe the people that put it together the time it takes the mastering of it all it's it's all about expense and i remember we tried to get a recording of um never gonna dance i mean it was all jerome kern and we because the show closed early and the producer decided they weren't gonna shell out any more money for a recording of it uh it was never recorded and so were the shows never done hardly ever done and it needed you need to have a recording yeah for it to be done i think it just enhances it so in the it having having a life afterward so uh, i remember we were all trying to raise money to uh to have a recording done on our own and we just couldn't raise the money because we needed like a couple hundred thousand dollars to do it i remember oh. It was that was that was sad. That should have been done. That should have been, that should have happened. So when things don't get recorded, when musicals don't get recorded that deserve to have another life, even if maybe they didn't last long in New York or whatever, uh, it's sad when that that doesn't come to fruition. Because it's about the music and it's about, uh, you know, because maybe somebody will have a different take on it. Maybe somebody else will try to make it happen again and bring it to life again and have different ideas and yeah. change things around. So your next Broadway show after this was Curtains. So what was it like to be working this time just with John Kander as Fred M. wasn't alive? Well, we missed Freddie very much. But that musical also had Rupert Holmes, who worked along with John Kander, Scott Ellis again, who at this point had just evolved into this like f phenomenal director. He always was great, but he just keeps getting better and better and better, as hopefully we all do, as we you know strive to become better and richer in our craft. And Rob Ashford was our choreographer. David Chase was our uh, dance arranger. Uh, we had so many great people working on that team. So, and David Hyde Pierce, our star, another, he's like, I call him, he's like an alien because he's like, there's nobody like him. He's just, just a phenomenal and such a great actor, such a funny man. Boy, I've got I've, boy, all these people I keep, you know, touting how wonderful they are, but it's true. It's these, I've gotten the chance to work with so many incredible people. But having David Hyde Pierce on board and Deborah Monk, two great comic actors, but also that has such big hearts. Not only they, they lead lead the tribe with a with with strength and love and generosity, but they also 
are so good at it and say, oh, let's try this. Let's try it. Oh, how about, this doesn't make sense here. So what if we turn this around? They just were so smart and really collaborated along with, with Rupert and Scott and, um, and John. So they, that was, that was a very collaborative, uh, workroom, all those guys. Yeah. So you were mentioning that Scott Ellis is a great director and he's done a lot of hit shows. In your opinion, what do you think makes for a great director? Oh, there's so many things. Well, first of all, you have to wear so many hats because you have to know so much about the technical part of the show. You do have like the experts doing their job, but you have to know what you want and you might have to know what, to, what it's going to look like and, and be able to, to speak technical speak enough that you can get your point across and but a lot of it boils down to understanding people humanity and being able to deal with people and how to pick your battles and um when to listen to somebody else that maybe your choice is maybe off or not right and you have to get and that's what's so great about theater. There's there's so many people hopefully helping each other out. So Curtains, I believe, had an out-of-town tryout, which I know you were mentioning that with Steel Pier. Is that something that you usually prefer to be in a show where yes. there's... Yeah, I do. I think it's very useful. Um, a lot of things changed in Curtains when it came to Broadway. They learned a lot from that first... Uh, go around at the Amundsen in Los Angeles. Was it the, was it the Amundsen? Yeah, the Amundsen. And, uh, so I think it was fruitful. So your next Broadway show was Bullets Over Broadway. So I want to ask you what it was like to work with the late Nick Cordero and Marin Maisie as well as... Yeah. Oh, well, I'd worked with Marin Maisie and then the world goes round off-Broadway. She replaced in that show, so we became friends back then. So I'd known her for many, many years. And she was also a champion of mine when I was cast in Bullets Over Broadway. She had already done a couple of the workshops, and I came in later, and she was really in my corner when it came to casting that part, that final character so I can't say enough about her. She's, she was a dear person in my life. And Nick, um, I didn't know Nick before he did that show, uh, did Bullets, and what a great guy. Uh, it was so nice knowing him, and that was a real tragedy losing him too mm -hmm. this past year. It doesn't. It's hard to, they're just tragedies. There's no other way to describe it. When you lose yeah. people so young and so vital, you think, what, why? So, but all I can say, do it, is, is be grateful that I had the chance to know them and, of course, work with them, perform with them, but to know them as people too, too because they were both, both Marin and Nick. Aces. Aces. So, on a lighter note, I want to ask you about Woody Allen, and I know he wrote the book for the show. So, was he? What was it like to work with him? Well, Woody would uh, 
he's a very private person. So he would, he would like watch out, out in the audience, like during our um, preview period and during rehearsals. And then he would, he would sense from the audience what was working, what wasn't working. And then he'd come back in the next day and he'd say, no, that's cut. This is cut. I want you to say this. I want, he, he had that kind of mind where he could cut or put, cut and paste, do whatever, whatever, because he had all this stuff in his head, jokes or structure or whatever it was that it needed. So he would come in like that and, uh, but he was very much to himself and very private. Yeah. He wasn't like a, hey, how you doing? Want to chat? <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. But he was very, he was very nice though. And I remember at the opening night, and when he was leaving, he would come. In, he came in, and then he left very early. So I just grabbed him on his way out and said, oh, "I just want to introduce you to my husband. Thank you very much for having me in the show." He said, "He said, you know, he said, you did a really great job with a really tough part." And I think he meant because my part was, it was not one of the big flashy sort of major. It was one of the more featured characters and, and didn't have a lot to say, but had to flesh out as much as I possibly could and hold this beautiful little dog with me all night, So which was really more the, the star than myself. So, and maybe he felt it was a little underwritten. He does, whatever it was, he was saying, you did a really good job with a very tough <laughs> So I thought, I took that as a compliment. What I want to ask you people of say the saying never work with children or animals but what was it like to have to be carrying a dog around all the time on stage was well, i love dogs so to me it was a joy and trixie her name the pomeranian that i performed with uh, is still with us and she went on to be in uh at Long Last Love, or not Long Last Love, she, the, the, whatever the play was that uh, Renee I Fleming did. Living. living on Love. Living on Love. I said to Bill Berloni, the, the Broadway you know, star dog trainer of Broadway, I said, I think I think that uh, Trixie's going to work. She's going to have a career. And boy, did she. And she's like a beautiful example of the Pomeranian breed. And I think that's why Susan Stroman cast her. <laughs> she said, I want a fluffy dog. I want a pretty fluffy dog. And so Bill Berloni found her a beautiful, pretty fluffy dog. And being able to bond with this rescue dog uh, for the first time, bonding with a dog that was not my own was a great experience. So there was something that I really got out of being part of Bullets Over Broadway was that. And since then, Bill Berloni helped me find my own rescue dog that I have now to this day, Gertie. So through my relationship with Bill Berloni, uh, I've been able to get my own rescue dog in my life. So that was a wonderful, also a great bonding to have with him in working with the dog for that show. So I want to ask you about another show where you collaborated with Arns and Flaherty, which some might know it as Little Dancer, some as Marie Dancing Still. So how, how has this show sort of changed throughout its many productions that you've been in all of? It's mostly changed in the casting just because it's, it's, uh, we've done it over uh, quite a few t years. And so people fall aside or are not available or, uh, 
creative team has a different idea of um, who's going to do what. But my role as um, Marie Van Gretem's mother uh, has stayed pretty much the same. And so I just keep showing up for that because I think it's got some really wonderful things in it. And I love Aaron's inviting their work and their, their scores. And the score to Little Dancers is great. So who knows whether that's going to ever happen. Cross our fingers, maybe someday. Yeah. yeah. Oh, has there been sort of an iteration of it that's been your favorite, either in a workshop or a reading or? That particular show? Yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness. They've all been really interesting because they've had different people in them, different casts. And what each person brings to it is... It's fascinating. Uh, and of course, my youngest daughter uh, originally was played by Sophia Caruso, who did Beetlejuice, and now she's a grown woman. And so they made me another little daughter. I keep aging too, but hopefully I won't age too much before the show is done and I can still be the mother of this teenager. But uh, it's. Uh, I can't say anyone is anyone is a favorite. We've had different people playing the part of Degas. We always have had Tyler Peck, the beautiful ballerina, playing um, Marie. She's phenomenal. Uh, I'd love for this to happen for her. She's quite beautiful in it. So I can't really say. Yeah. I can't say uh, uh, we did a the, the, we did the, the production that we did. Back in 2014, uh, also starred Rebecca Luker, who has just passed away this week. Um, she was beautiful in the show, and I got to become very, I've known her for many, many years, but got very close with her since then, and um, had been spending time with her this past year during her illness. So that was a, a fabulous um, friend to make and become close to during that pr production of Little Dancers. So that, I came away with that friendship, which was which was really lovely. So I could say maybe that was that was the one. I met a lot of really nice people in that production. So I'm grateful for that. So another recent show that you've been a part of is Kid Victory. So I want to ask you again what it was like to work with John Kander this time at age 90. <laughs> okay, so he, John was working with... Um, a different uh, book writer this time and lyricist, um, Greg Pierce. And so it was a very different style, um, a very dark show, uh, not in lighting so much, but in content. Yeah. Tragic and yet also humorous and eye-opening, uh, and I played sort of a despicable character, but not, but always felt she was doing her best. She didn't know any better. And so that's, the, but those are the kind of shows, I'm not saying despicable characters, but those are the kind of shows that John Kander likes to be part of. He likes to work on something new, different, and groundbreaking, and not something that someone would necessarily want to write a musical about. 
Yeah. He likes breaking barriers and just a, few, a story fascinates him. He said, I want to write about that. I want to write songs about that or that music and um, collaborate on that story because that story gets in my gut and my mind and my heart and I just, I, I want to write about that. And the, that was one of those stories, this Kid Victory. And I was thrilled to be part of it. I know that you've done a number of shows off-Broadway as well as on-Broadway. Have there been some or one, including that, that you wish had come to Broadway? Well, Kid Victory was also another one of those shows that was good in an intimate setting. I mean, it, you could have opened it up a bit more, but it was a very intimate uh, show. And also... For a lot of people, hard to take, very confronting, and needed to be, I think, in a theater that where people could, people could be close and close up and feel that togetherness. Um, you know, we did Contact down at the uh, Bitsy Newhouse in a small theater. We were going, ooh, gosh, I hope it's going to still, it's still going to come across in the big Vivian Beaumont, and little mm -hmm. did we we know it was going to do great. It actually enhanced it in, in many ways. But you just don't, you never know. So it's always worth a try. But, I mean, look at Hamilton. Yeah. And it didn't go to a, like, a enormous theater, but it, it's still an intimate theater. But it's, uh, they made it work. A lot of it is like the creative team. They've got it, you know, go back to the drawing board and say like, how are we gonna open this up and make this still convey what we did originally, but without losing what it really stands for. And that's the key. So, but I can't, um, off Broadway, um, you know, I always was, was hoping that, you know, and the world goes round could have found a really nice, small, intimate theater, but that didn't happen, but it's still, that thing, that thing lives on and has been done all over the place and it's been very successful, a very successful show for so many, so I'm happy about that. And we got a great cast album from it. Oh yeah, I, I love the cast album. Mm -hmm. So the last show I want to ask you about is Prince of Broadway, which is the last show you've done on Broadway so far. So what was it like to be working with Hal Prince? Ah, I was so lucky to get to work with him before he passed. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was going to live forever. <laughs> but how fortunate for me to share his words of wisdom and hear his stories. He was one of a kind. Uh, I remember as a kid, you know, when I was, you know, listening to all my cast album, Broadway cast albums, there's always, his picture was like, I'm pretty, pretty almost every damn show I had. It's like, who's this Hal Prince, Hal Prince, Hal Prince? Little did I know I would be able to be in a room with him and uh, him directing me in a show, being alone with him, him telling me stories about the wonderful La Helena who created oh. the role of Frau Schneider in Cabaret and who, I got to sing a song from that show that she originated. 
and I'm now reading a book about Ladalanya actually, oh. but uh, his just his recollections of of the people that he's worked with and uh, as he's directing you because those are his his memories of like this is what worked. See what you can do with this. You know, Lottie, blah 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 blah. And it's like, oh man, bring it on, bring it on. Yeah. So um. How did you sort of observe the balance in rehearsals between he and Susan Stroman, who was his co-director and choreographer? Well, Hal is a morning person. So he, he liked to start early and he would then have lunch and then she would pretty much take over. I mean, she was there from the very, from the very first hour of the day too, but she would continue on with rehearsals because, you know, he was getting pushing 90 at that point. Yeah. And he, he was a very early riser. So it's like, you know, after lunch, it's sort of like, mm, I'm not good for anything. So I'm going to back off now and you take over. So he was very smart that way. I feel that way sometimes too. When you have a long lunch break, when you have a day of rehearsal, it's like, I don't know if I can come back. I'm so busy digesting my lunch and I, my mind starts to go, uh, it just happens. But so he was there early morning. So I became a morning person too. It was like, okay, that's going to be in the morning. So got to get it up in the morning. Uh, so that's kind of what it was, but there was such a great respect between the two of them. For each other. So how did you sort of get assigned what number you were going to do and everyone else? Well, I was uh, the I was taking a part that had been done in Japan in the J Japanese company of this. They had done it prior, done, done an out of an out of world tryout, <laughs> an out of you don't say like out of town tryout. This was like an out of continent tryout, mm -hmm. and uh, they did a production of it in Japan. And so there were a few people that did not return to the this particular the Broadway production. So that's when I stepped in, and. That's how that happened. So I was relegated those particular role, the, the particular songs that that character um, sang or uh, performed in. Yeah. Are there any of those roles that you would want to do in full at some point? Well, I did get to play Mrs. Lovett and I'd, I'd like to play her again. But again, I played Sally in Follies and Prince Broby. That's the one that I'm hopefully someday um, some, anything in Follies. There's so many great roles in Follies. So that's the show I think that I'd really like to do. Maybe Cabaret. So I've never done a production of Cabaret to you know play for Schneider in Cabaret someday. Uh, what else is in that show that I that <laughs> I could still play? <laughs> I'm a little old to play Evita. Uh, can't play Evita anymore. I can sing it in my shower. <laughs> a new Argentina. Uh, well, that's, that's Chase song, excuse me. Uh, but those two that I mentioned, I think. I yeah. like to do cabaret, like to do follies. Uh, so I want to ask you about all the virtual theater you've been doing, of course, two by two. And I know you did some Shaw plays on Stars in the House. So how has that, what has that experience been like of doing theater online? Well, you have to connect with uh, your audience no matter where you are, whether you're sitting in a chair in a room in your house or whether you're on stage. But being isolated 
and like I said before, not being able to reach out and touch um, anybody or see anybody visual, actually seeing somebody or being near some near an audience, it's it's a very different experience. It's very isolating. But uh, you just when you hear somebody's voice, um, the warmth of their voice, the empathy in their voice, whatever you must connect to that. And that's what we've got right now. So I like I'm doing with you right now. Yeah. And then the last question I would like to ask you is what kind of theater or what shows would you like to do when we do eventually get back from all of this? Anything and everything. <laughs> uh, love to work on something new. Um, but that's going to be a grand day. Um, when I set foot into my first day of rehearsal for a live production of something. I don't know what it's going to be, but I am going to kiss, kiss the walls, kiss the ground, just say thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. I had such a great experience. Charles. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when we are joined by two extremely talented young actors, each of whom have written wonderful memoirs. The first of those is Samantha Hahn, author of On the Roof, a look inside Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. She played Belka, the younger daughter in that production. She also lent her voice to Nickelodeon's Nella the Princess Knight and appeared in Manhattan School of Music's virtual production of the mystery of Edwin Drood. Tune in next time to hear everything you've ever wanted to know about that Yiddish production. Thanks for listening.